to uh, worship one well, we need to know the one we worship. We are going to approach God. We need to know the God which we are approaching, who he is, what he is like, what kinds of things are, are, are things that he dislikes, what are, what are his attributes. In this way, you know, worship, which is what we're doing here, coming together, worship is like going on a date. If you're not really paying attention to your date, then it's not going to be much of a date, right? including where you bring your date, where you're going on your date. If you are somebody who really wants to go swing dancing and your date likes square dancing, I don't know if it'll be a great date. Or if you want to go see Top Gun and your date really wants to see where the crawdaddies sing, uh, I don't know how close you're going to get uh, through this date. So the same is true with, with God. I found this out um, when I took my, my daughter once on a date. So she was a little girl, Veronica. And uh, I took her out uh, on this date, and we were living in New York City. And I kind of assumed that it would be like going on a date with my wife. And I, I don't know if you know my wife, but her tastes are for the uncommon, she, uh, she always wants to try something new and, and different cultures of her. That's what she gravitates towards. She just eats it up, literally. That's, that's the where she wants to go and eat, to something she hasn't had before, you know? So when I took my daughter out on a day, and we, had, we would have great times in New York City. We lived there at a time when it was actually quite, it was great to live there. And we, I, we would go out on Sunday night, and I would try to keep her out as late as possible by giving her new experiences. Uh, and it was always an adventure, because you never know what you were going to find <laughs> on the streets of Manhattan. Uh, so I was taking my daughter out, and I, I took her to a modern dance uh, uh, exhibition, which you know she did not like. She was more interested in an action movie. And uh, afterwards, I took her to this little uh, restaurant called Saints Alp Tea House, uh, which is down in Greenwich Village, because it served bubble tea. And uh, back then, bubble tea was this amazing, uncommon thing. And I thought, well, let's go get bubble tea at Saints Alp House. Well, Saints Alp Tea House, she, didn't, she wasn't interested in that at all. She was interested in the store next door, uh, which was called Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> And at one point, I think she just got really frustrated with me because we're standing there on a New York City street. She, she must have been really frustrated because she just blurted out. She said, Abba, she said, Dad, I'm not mom. I like plain things. And uh, that's when I realized I'm not going to get that close with my daughter on this date. And so it is with God in worship, you know, if we're going to get close to him, I assume that you're coming here to get close to him. I assume that's why you come to worship. If we're going to get close to him, we have to know him. You can't get close to him without knowing his attributes, his characteristics, who it is you're worshiping. And so while we're in the book of Samuel, I wanted to bring us to a place where David tells us something that he learned about God. Near the end of the book, 
2 Samuel 22, there is a song of David. He gives us a song of David. And it's a little hard to tell when he composed this song. Sounds like it might be from the middle of his life when he had been rescued from Saul and rescued from his enemies when he became king. But he's reflecting on his life. He's interpreting his life. And he says, as for God, and he tells us, this is what I've learned about God. And I thought this would be very good for us uh, to to hear in order to think about uh, God and, and the person that we are trying to ga- engage with um, in worship. So let's hear that now. I'm going to ask Kimberly to come up and read to us from David's psalm in 2 Samuel 22. Could you stand with me and listen? This is 2 Samuel 22, 31 to 32 in the New International Version. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except for God? This is the word of the Lord. God. Thank you. Please be seated. As for God, says David, and then he tells us about God's perfection. You know, it's hard to find perfection. Where do we find perfection in this world? Where do we find perfection in other people? We don't really, right? We tend to not speak of people that way. We tend to not talk about them in terms of being perfect, right? Especially in this day and age, we're living in a time, are we not, when, when people are especially kind of anti-hero, right? And nowadays, we have, we have anti-heroes like Deadpool. And even our superhero movies, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not keeping up with them. I don't know what's going on, no matter which universe I'm in. Uh, I grew tired of it a long time ago. But if you look at those movies... Uh, even those heroes are not really heroes. Like, if, if they're going to be a good superhero movie, you're, you're focusing on the faults of the hero, right? There's something that's really wrong with that hero. That's, what, that's what's held up today, that even, even in the superhero, it's not like old heroes like Superman. No, there's something wrong with this guy or this woman, you know, and that's part of their superhero-ness. Like, they're really messed up. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of this, this sign of our times. It's, it's the aura of our times. We're anti-hagiography, right? We don't, we're very suspicious of hagiography. We don't really accept that somebody's a real hero. They must have these flaws, right? Isn't that, isn't, don't you get the sense of, of where we are now and what we, um, what we are looking for? And I think that we carry that over into our thinking about God, we think, uh, well, we don't know people who are real heroes. We know that people are messed up. And we kind of carry it over and we think, well, God probably has something wrong with him to do. And if you look at a lot of contemporary theology, it's infected with this. People are saying that God is not really, he's, he's, he falls short in different ways. And there are things that God can't really do and he doesn't really know. And it's a lot of contemporary theology is about that. Well, David is contradicting that in verse 31. He's saying, no. His ways are perfect. They're perfect. And then verse 32, he says, 
who is like him in this? There's no one like Yahweh. He's perfect. So he's, he's implying there that really there's, he's kind of unique in his perfection. You know, we might have warrant for looking at people and assuming that they're messed up, that they're not really heroes. We might have warrant for that with, with, all the, all the pe- with one another, but he's unique in this way. He's perfect. And I got to tell you, I, I really enjoy thinking about God's perfection. It's something that I find really helpful, and it's something I really enjoy doing. You know, I live out in um, this, just north of this town called Quarryville, which is in southern Lancaster County. And if you've never heard of that town, it's okay. <laughs> because uh, it's basically at an intersection of, of several state roads, 222, I guess, and, and 372. See, I have to look at my notes to see. I'm not even sure. 472. I think there are four roads that come together right there, I guess, and that's basically the town. But I love driving into Quarryville on Route 372, right to where it joins up with Route 472. Because if you come to that, it's a very unassuming corner. But if you come right to that corner and you come to, from 372, you turn onto Route 472, right on that corner, on your right, there's a store. And I love driving by that store because the name of the store is Simply Perfect. And I've, I've uh, never been in it. I'm a little bit puzzled about what they do there. I think it has something to do with skin therapy because they advertise things out here on, on the front, like come get a facial, you know, or a Brazilian wax or something. And I'm not sure of all the things that go on there. But I love the, I love the name of the store so much. I, in fact, I almost went in there once to get a chemical peel. Just, and not because I think I need a chemical peel and not because I really understand what a chemical peel is, but just because of the name of the store, I wanted to patronize. I was like, this store is so great. It's simply perfect. I didn't end up doing that, so uh, I haven't had a chemical peel, but um, I love driving by that store because it reminds me of God. Listen to the way the, the scripture writers talk about God in this way. They use this word, Tamim in Hebrew, Tamim. And it's a word that was uh, used for the sacrifices that people were going to make. They had an animal to sacrifice. That animal had to be Tamim, had to be perfect. In other words, it had to have no blemishes on it. You couldn't have anything that was slightly wrong with the animal. If you're going to bring the animal to worship, to sacrifice, it had to be Tamim. And the biblical writers take that from the law and they apply that to God. We could see it in our passage here today in verse 31, that God's way is perfect. Deuteronomy 32, God's activity is perfect. Job 37, God's knowledge is perfect. Psalm 19, his law perfect. It's kind of capped off by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he says God himself is perfect. 
What does that mean? What does it mean to say that God is perfect? It means that he has, he has, he completely possesses all excellent qualities. And there are no qualities that are, that are good that he does not possess. He does not lack in any quality that it is desirable to have. He's perfect in this way. So this attribute of God is, is in a way, it's, it's, a, it's kind of like about all the other attributes of God. Because in all the other attributes, he's he's, his knowledge is perfect. You know? His love is perfect. His holiness is perfect. He has perfect power, etc., etc. He's complete in every way. He's simply perfect. So in the 11th century, there lived a monk, and his name was Anselm. And he lived with a lot of other monks in Canterbury. And I think Anselm was probably one of the smartest people who ever lived, my opinion. But uh, the other monks that lived with Anselm in this monastery kind of figured out that there was something brilliant about this guy. I think they kind of realized that something, <laughs> this guy is pretty brilliant. And so one, one day, the other monks came to Anselm, <clears throat> and they said, would you write for us a proof of the existence of God that doesn't use anything from the Bible, doesn't use any scripture, and doesn't use other things from the world. Could you prove God's existence? They asked him to do this. So Anselm went away, he prayed, and then he wrote down his prayer. And we have included it in your bulletin this morning. And this became known as St. Anselm's ontological argument. And it's a prayer. It's actually a prayer. But uh, what we've also done is kind of summarized it for you because it's a little bit hard to get from the prayer. So we've, we've summarized it also in the bulletin on the right-hand side in five tenets, okay? Five steps in his argument for God's existence. And this is known as Anselm's ontological argument. And what I would like to do to kind of celebrate God's perfection just because of the way he talks about God, is to go through this proof with you. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before or seen this, but we're going to talk about it this morning. And I'm indebted to this, for this summary, by the way, to uh, Scott, Professor Scott Oliphant of Westminster Theological Seminary. He, you, you can summarize his, uh, the ontological army in different, in different ways. And he does a good job here to help us understand it. All right, so we're, let's go through it here. Step one, <clears throat> this is the premise. God is that than which no greater can be conceived. Okay? God is that than which no greater being could be conceived. Okay? I think we can agree on that. Right? That's kind of a good definition. You say this is God by definition. That than which no greater being can be conceived. Okay? We can, we can agree on that. That's number one. Number two. Very simple, these steps. Even someone who rejects the existence of such a God nevertheless understands the concept of a being than which none greater can be conceived. 
Right? Even if you're here today and you're like, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in this religion stuff. Okay, I don't, I don't believe in that. But at least you can understand the concept, right? Everybody could, could understand the concept of that being then which no greater could be conceived. Right? So we could do that. We can agree with that too. Sure. Number three, to understand the concept means that such a one exists in our mind. You understand that there is such a concept of one than which none could be greater. Then that one exists in your mind, right? It's really saying the same thing, three. Number four, we're almost there. Number four, but it is greater to exist in reality than to just exist in the mind. Whatever exists only in the mind, but not in reality, might be greater than it is, right? So it's greater to exist in reality than just in the mind. Therefore, number five, that being than which no greater can be conceived, existing in the mind, by definition, must exist in reality. Because it is that than which no greater can be conceived, but it would be greater if it didn't exist in, in, in reality. So it must exist in reality. Therefore, God exists. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Okay. <laughs> All right, well, most people, I, th- I can see from some of you, some of your reaction. Most people have, uh, who are exposed to this argument, they have the reaction of, wait a second, what just got pulled over on me, right? Most people who here have never heard it before, they say, wait, something just got pulled over on me. I don't know about this. I remember when I first learned about this argument, I was so excited. I was like, this is it. God exists. It's proven. I ran to my atheist friend. His name was Bob Schultz. I was so excited. I was over the moon. I would say, you've got to hear this. You've got to understand this argument. I gave him the ontological argument. And he was not impressed. He was like, ah, you're talking about steeples and stuff like that. He, did, he, he, just not, he was not persuaded by it. Um, and I was, very, I was deflated by that. I was like, ah, are you kidding me? This is it. Uh, because I thought this was the greatest uh, argument in the world. But this is the reaction that people have. Uh, in fact, all the philosophers that came after Anselm <laughs> have issued kind of different re- refutations of Anselm's ontological argument. All the great philosophers, Thomas Aquinas, Immanuel Kant, David Hume, they all kind of issue their own refutation of Anselm's. It's like, this is how philosophers cut their teeth, is by refuting Anselm's ontological argument. But, you know, I've noticed something about all these philosophers, is that they all make a different criticism. They're all trying to look at it and see what's wrong exactly with this argument, and they all come up with something different. What does that say? I think that says that they don't really know what's wrong with it. You might think you know what's wrong with it, but you'll be like the philosophers because they all come up with something different. This is the only a priori argument for God's existence that anyone has ever given. And yet, 
Here it is, um, still with us today. You know, you can get a modern sort of descendant of this argument. If you ever hear somebody say, how can we know, how can we know what love is unless love exists in God? You know, or how can we know what perfection is? How can we have an idea of perfection unless God is perfect? How can we have an idea of what's right or what's good unless God is that way? You know, if you have ever heard an argument like that, that's a kind of intellectual child of Anselm's ontological argument. And it might be a little bit more persuasive uh, to, to our non-scholastic minds, right? But I love this. I, I'm not going to ask you to weigh in on whether this is a valid argument. If you feel like you, it's not a valid argument, that's okay with me. I just want you to know I love this argument because of the first premise, just because of the way he describes God. That then which no greater can be conceived. He's right, Anselm is. God is that than which no greater can be conceived. Or Psalm 145, right? His greatness is unsearchable. It's simply perfect. So that's great. So maybe you're convinced by Anselm's ontological argument, maybe not. Maybe you would find more convincing the evidence that God has given of his perfection, actually the greatest evidence that's ever been given, the most perfect expression of his perfection on earth that we ever have had. And that, friends, is Jesus Christ. I don't know how many of you have a friend who um, goes out on a date, maybe a first date, and have you ever had a friend come home from a first date and call you up and, and he or she is just breathless? He says, wow, I've found the one. This, this one is, this date is perfect. And if you're the friend, you're probably the one putting the brakes on things. It's like, wait, slow down. You know, I know you might think that the person's, but it's been one date. It's only the first date. You think that the person's perfect, but I know these other things. Have you thought about that? And, and your friend says, no, 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 but this one, this one is perfect. I, I have a friend actually uh, like this who has a number of these dates. Um, and she comes home the first time and says, this guy is perfect. And her mother says to her, that's what you said about the last one, you know, and the other one, the one before that. She goes, no, 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 this one is absolutely perfect. And if you're a mother or if you're a friend in one of these situations, right, you're trying to put the brakes on. Why? Because you know, inevitably, if you have a second date, a third date, fourth date, the more you get to know a person, the more you will see, ah, they kind of fall short of, of perfection, you know, right? We know that. We know that that's going to happen. The closer that you get to someone, the more you know that they're going to, you know, they might have great qualities, but they're going to fall short of perfection, right? We, we just know that general, general, by general experience closer you get to someone, the more you see their faults, the more of the way you see the ways in which they fall short of per perfection, don't we? Right? Okay, here's the thing. The disciples of Jesus Christ had the exact opposite experience. Exact opposite. When they started out, they were saying things like, oh man, can anything good come from Nazareth? And 
Now, I do not know why he is yelling at this leper that he's healing. Why is he yelling? Jesus did so many things they did not understand. And they were a little bit reticent. They were, they were reserved in their commitment. But as time went on, the more and more they saw Jesus, the closer they got to Jesus, the more they admired him. As time went on, the more time they spent with him, actually even living with him, the more they esteemed him. Now, when does that happen? Who, who does ever, what experience do we have of anybody where that is the case? But that was the case of the disciples. So much so, they filled up four gospels with his perfections. Four different, four different accounts just to try to capture all of his perfections. That was their experience with him. People who were dying next to him kind of saw it. People who were killing him saw it. You know, I, uh, before there was The Chosen, there was the greatest story ever told. You know, the old Jesus movies. You know, not as good as The Chosen, but the greatest story ever told. I, re I really appreciated that movie. What I really liked about The Greatest Story Ever Told was the way they portrayed Judas Iscariot when he, when he betrayed Jesus Christ. Because they get this conflict and you have Judas Iscariot, if you've ever seen that movie, he's there with the Pharisees and they're giving him this money and he wants the money, but he's very conflicted. And he's saying, oh, but you're not going to hurt him, even though I'm betraying him to you. <laughs> you're not going to hurt him, right? And they say, no, no, we're not going to hurt him, but why do you care? And Judas Iscariot says, it's because Jesus is the kindest, most good person I've ever met. Old people flock to him. Children adore him. He is just, he's essentially saying, he's simply perfect. And they just capture this, this conflict in Judas Iscariot uh, in turning him over because of Jesus' perfection. He was perfect. Lived a perfect life. You know, another way to say that, as it says in Hebrews 4, is that he knew no sin. He was tempted in every respect in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Or 2 Corinthians 5, he had no sin. And you know what's interesting? Is that the people who got closest to Jesus, the ones who got to know him the best, are the ones in the New Testament who are most forward in saying he's perfect. Simon Peter, right? One of the three. There, there are these three that are kind of like the inner circle of Jesus. Simon, Peter, and James, and John, Right? Simon Peter, the closest to Jesus. First Peter, what does he say in his, in his letter, 1 Peter 2? He committed, he committed no sin. No deceit was ever in his mouth. You think, what a claim. No deceit was ever in his mouth, according to Peter. Got close to him. John, John, the apostle John, maybe even got closer to Jesus than Peter did. I mean, arguably, he maybe was even closer than Peter. And you look and read John's letter, 1 John 3. He just says, really, directly, in him, in him is no sin. In him is no sin, 1 John 3. I mean, as, as if eternally, back then, before, every time, all the time that we saw him, in him is no sin. He was faultless. He was faultless. In fact, friends, Jesus was tamim. 
He was tamim. He was just like that word that they use in Leviticus for the sacrifice. In fact, he was so perfect that he was the perfect sacrifice for us. You want to know why you're redeemed? It's because of his perfection. And he was so perfect. He was so tamim. He was so blameless. He, had so, he was so faultless that he became the perfect sacrifice for us. That's how perfect he was. So that all imperfections were swallowed up in him. All the things that have gone wrong with the world, all the things that have gone wrong with us, swallowed up because he was just perfect. And he was sacrificed in that perfection. So what I want us to do this morning is repent. I want to ask us to repent of not enjoying God's perfection because he is. I want us to seriously examine ourselves in light of this text. Do, you, do we really believe that? Or have we taken on kind of the postmodern aura and applied it to God? Do we really understand that there is none like him? There really is none like him. He is completely worthy of our attention, completely worth our admiration, completely worth letting ourselves go to worship him. Absolutely. And that's why we, you know, we put so much effort into this worship service that we do. If you actually look at the staff time that we spend, I mean, we do other things too, but we spend most of our time getting ready for the Sunday service, evaluating the last Sunday service, getting ready for the next one. We spend a lot of time doing that. Why? What, what actually happens here? We're not really accomplishing anything. Right? If you think about it, what are we actually accomplishing? So we're putting all this energy into accomplishing nothing except worship. And we're doing it because he's worth it. Because he is just, because our primary audience in our worship is just so worth it. That's why we do it. Now, you might be here and you might be saying, oh, I would love to think about God's perfection, but I can't. I have too many problems. I just, get, I just like, I can't, I can't concentrate on something like that, esoteric, because I'm just afflicted in too, in too many different ways. There's too much injustice happening in my life. There's things happening that I just, I can't deal with uh, that are happening to me. I just want you to read through Psalm, uh, not Psalm, 2 Samuel 22. Because what you see there is a man who describes his suffering and he's experiencing torrents of destruction in his life. You know, you read Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 22, it's, uh, it's like snares of death he's talking about. He's really going through it. It's like one of the worst psalms. In fact, it becomes one of the psalms, this song. But what we see in verse 31 is that David is speaking as though God's perfection is a refuge for him. He's saying, it's, it's my refuge. This, his way is perfect, and that is my refuge. Because David is what he learned in his life. Seeing God rightly means we can see the world rightly. When we see God rightly, it changes the way that we see what's happening to us and what's going on around us. Even if it's uh, that something wrong inside of ourselves, even if it's that sin, right? In verse 32, he says, it's like being on this rock 
And then we didn't read it, but verse 33, he goes on and says, and he makes me blameless. His perfection swallows up my imperfections. So if you are troubled today, even by your own sin, it is his tamim, it is his perfection that brings you out of that. And what we're turning to today, when we turn to the table now, is we're turning to that perfect sacrifice for you. Understand God's perfection and you will be free. Amen? Amen. Please stand with me. The Lord be with you. Also with you. Lift up your hearts. Lift them up to the Lord. Now let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise because you are perfect. And your perfection is It goes to all of your attributes in every way. And because of that, it's so wonderful to even put our attention on you because we don't know anything else that's perfect in this life. We certainly don't know other people who are perfect, but you are perfect. And because of that, we lift our voices with all those who get to contemplate you at all times and all places. All those who are with you even in heaven and are are surveying your perfection all the time. We lift up our voices with them in our unending hymn of praise. Jesus, we, we look upon you and we are convinced of God's perfection. Maybe not. Maybe Anselm can convince us. Maybe he can't. But you convince us by your very presence, by the way that you walked on this earth. We look at you and we call upon you as our perfect sacrifice. We thank you that what you have done, you have done in the perfection of God. And for that, we praise you. We ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us now that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of your body and blood. Unite us with yourself, Messiah. Strengthen us thereby. Amen. Now let's approach the table together in the words that the Lord gave us to pray, praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom 
and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please be seated. I want to invite up uh, Craig and Phil uh, now to help me and some other members of the congregation to help us form two different stations here to serve the elements. Um, what we're going to be doing here now is celebrating the Lord's perfection in, in sacrificing his perfect self for us. And so we commemorate that by having the Lord's Supper. And this is for those of you who have come to the Lord and have cast yourself upon him for his perfection because you realize how imperfect you are. If you're not in that place yet, we're really happy that you're here this morning uh, to listen to Anselm's ontological argument with us. Uh, maybe you might find that convincing, but if you're not yet convinced, uh, we're going to ask that you not come forward uh, to receive the elements. We, we hope that you can still connect with God where you are, maybe in prayer. Um, but the reason that we do this is because Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, he gave it to all his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup when he had given thanks he gave it to all of his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Because he did that, beloved, we can proclaim now the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. All right. I think we're ready. Please uh, come forward by the center rows and uh, come back by the sides. If you would like prayer, we would love to pray for uh, you and your non-community members. If you have children uh, who are not um, coming to the table yet, we'd love to pray with, for you if you would like. And uh, let us all now enjoy the perfect sacrifice made for us. Come, please come. Come.